The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever." He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. My experience of Holy Communion has changed so much in my lifetime. I grew up in a small Methodist church three miles outside Carthage, Texas. We were on a circuit, three churches, one of them twice as big as each of the other two, So the church at Beckville got the pastor halftime, Rock Hill and Rehoboth, the one I attended, quarter time. So we had a pastor only a fourth of the time each month, which meant that we got a sermon once a month. The other three Sundays, we just had Sunday school until it was in high school when we finally had enough budget that we could have a full-time pastor. But my growing up years, we had a sermon once a month, Sunday school the other three Sundays in the month, and it was rare, maybe once or twice a year we would have Holy Communion. I remember going to the table and seeing a dinner plate there, not the beautiful brassware we have here, just a dinner plate from somebody's house. And we didn't have the beautiful wafers that we buy from the Catholic supply house here. Instead, someone had taken Nabisco crackers and broken them into quarters And you got a quarter of a cracker and a little cup of juice when you went to the table. I got to Centenary College, our Methodist college in Shreveport, Louisiana, and discovered that the choir master of the biggest Episcopal church in the city was director of worship at the chapel, which was compulsory. And he was determined that all the Methodist students who came to Centenary College would learn to appreciate their Anglican roots. So this compulsory chapel we had followed after the services that John and Charles Wesley would have worshipped in 300 years before. Then when I got to the seminary at SMU in Dallas, I was determined to learn how Methodists ought to worship. In the little church where I'd grown up, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night were all the same. We had two little hymn books, the little rust-colored one, Cokesbury, and the other, the little gray paperbacked one called the Upper Room Hymnal, and we sang 25 minutes, took up the money, and the preacher preached. Sunday night, we sang 25 minutes, took up the money, and the preacher preached, and Wednesday night, we had uh, 25 minutes of singing, a Bible study, benediction, everybody went home. I was determined to learn how to do it, and so I went to chapel five days a week. We had chapel every day at 10 o'clock, but not compulsory. You could go or not. I went. And for the first time in my life, I was doing Holy Communion five days a week, not twice a year. And I learned every prayer by heart, and I learned every response that we sing here by heart. I wanted you to learn this service when I came. 
this service of Holy Communion. But I remember at the little church where I grew up, on those rare occasions when we had Holy Communion, there was one man whom I really loved like a third grandfather to me, Mr. Emmett. had a wife named Miss Eunice. They had children, grandchildren, but they lived many miles away. And so Mr. Emmett and Miss Eunice sort of became grandfather, grandmother to all the kids in this little church. They loved them. We loved them. They were sweet and always upbeat, twinkle in their eye. They really were a wonderful couple. When we'd have communion, this little church, Mr. Emmett never went forward. So one Sunday when I was about fifth grade, that year that I felt God calling me to profess my faith and be baptized, I geared up my courage after church and quietly said to Mr. Emmett just outside the doors of the church, Mr. Emmett, why don't you ever go to the table? I've never forgotten what he said. It takes an awfully good man to go to the table of the Lord. I've never felt I was that good. And I said, Mr. Emmett, my mother told me it's not about how good we are, it's about how good God is. That was the right answer. This table is not about how good we are. This table is about how good God is. I've underlined four things. Look at them in the text with me. First of all, notice again, here in John's Gospel, as we have in the three synoptics, John is saying, these things Jesus said in the synagogue at Capernaum. In the synagogue at Capernaum, Jesus believed it was important to go regularly to the house of God. Just recently, I was reading an article about Grandma Moses. You know that I like paintings. And so I was reading this article about her. She didn't paint until she was 76, but she lived 25 more years. Some say she produced more than a 1,000 paintings. Some say she may have produced as many as 3,000. They've never been all accounted for or gathered together. She had almost no formal education. She just started painting one day when she was 76, and she liked it. She said she liked westerns on television, so she'd watch westerns every night and get up and start painting again the next morning. But she sold enough that some say she received half a million dollars from her painting those last 25 years of her life. This article sort of smugly said, I thought, Grandma Moses' father was a Methodist, but he never entered a church. I thought, what a strange statement. He was a Methodist, but never entered a church. Nor did he take his children to church. He walked with them in the woods on Sunday mornings. How about walking in the woods on Sunday afternoon? Why not having one's children in Sunday school and singing in a choir, being a part of worship on Sunday morning? Grandma Moses could have used a faith when she was only 12, this loving father of hers let her move out of the house and become a hired girl down the road, a place she lived and worked seven days a week until she was 27 when she married the hired hand. They would end up having 10 children 
She lived long enough to bury that husband and all ten kids, every one of them. I think she could have used a faith. She lived through the Great Civil War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, Korean conflict. I think she could have used a faith somewhere, don't you? The Bible just seems to take this for granted, that people of faith go to the synagogue. People of faith go to the church. This is what we do. This is so important. We believe this book and this people of the book somehow have within us the answers, the answers that really matter. Number two, John's account here of his understanding of the Last Supper and what it means of Holy Communion, the Eucharist, whatever name you prefer to use, is if you don't eat and you don't drink of me, then you do not have my life in you. Two years ago, when our economy really turned under Every institution that had endowment monies suddenly had their income severely curtailed. A lot of our biggest corporations, banks, cut their dividends often almost to nothing, a penny a quarter perhaps, some of them. CDs started paying virtually nothing. Uh, Interest-bearing accounts in banks, almost nothing. Money market accounts, almost nothing. So colleges, universities, along with churches, synagogues, we've all had to take a look at where we spend every dollar. University of Denver made a statement that they'd gone through all of their expenses and discovered that in the last 10 years, they had added thousands of books to the university library. 47% of which had never been opened. No evidence that 47% of the books that had been added to the library had ever been opened. A reporter read that in the Denver Post and said, Whoa, I wonder if that's true of other college universities. So he started calling around and asking them, Have you been through your budget line by line? How much money you spend on your library? How many new books you put in? University of Arizona fessed up. They said in the last 10 years, they have added $19 million in books to their library, books that have never been opened a single time. That's what they said. 19 million of them had never been touched in the last 10 years. Well, what are you going to do about that? They were asked, and the answer was... We've decided we're not buying any more books for the library until somebody asks for one. And even then, we're going to give them a digital readout of the book. Only when we've had at least five people ask for a title will we spend the money to add it to our library. You see, you can have a lot of books, but if no one reads them, what do you have? You can offer an invitation to the table, but if people do not come, then they have no life in me, he said. You can offer the font filled with fresh, life-giving water, this symbolic washing away of sin, of self, 
of putting God and God's Son, Jesus, into the center of our lives, of put others into the center of our lives, if you don't participate, you do not have my life in you, he said. You do not have my life in you. Number three. Scholars say that in one of the verses we read, the key word is the Greek word menen, menen. John uses it often in his gospel. We usually translate it abide. Abide or remain is what it means. I abide in the Father, and the Father abides in me. I will pray to the Father, and he will send the Spirit. And those who abide in the Spirit, Jesus said... I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you. It means not just starting well. It means finishing well. My very first semester in college, I'd been asked to pastor those two little country churches. I went to a district preacher's meeting. The pastor of the First Methodist Church in Longview, Texas, which was the biggest church in our district, asked me, How are you doing? I said, I'm doing well. What are your favorite courses? I started naming them off. He said, How many is that? I said, I'm taking 20 hours. He said, 20 hours and pastoring two little churches? I said, Yes, I'm getting on with this. And he said, Son, this is not a hundred yard dash, this is a marathon. Well, I've been running a long time now. I know how far this race is. But I believe one of the most important words we need to hear is the word abide. We came to see the music man a couple of weeks ago. And I saw people here for the music man whom I've not seen in this sanctuary in four or five years. I was sad. I was sad. What did I say? What did I not say? That made them think you can just drift away. Come back when the church offers a Broadway musical, but not the offering on Sunday morning at 8.30 or 11 or 9.40. I hadn't seen them in the church in several years. Remaining is so important. Laura Vanderkamp has written a book called 168 Hours. She said that all of us function on this weekly calendar. I mean, Sundays are not like Thursdays, and Saturdays are not like Mondays or Fridays. We all are on this seven-day cycle, and in fact, if you multiply that out, 7 times 24, you get 158. Uh, did I do that right? Uh, 158, 168 hours, 168 hours. Now, she said, if you really plan well and do what your physician recommends, get eight hours of sleep a night, that's 56 in the week. Suppose you work 40 hours, but it takes you an hour to get there, an hour to get home, or you just choose to work more, let's say 50 hours a week. That puts you up at 102. What are you doing then, 108, then what are you doing with the other 62 hours? What are you doing with the other 62? And she said, she started researching 
taking polls and discovered the average husband and wife talk to each other 12 minutes a day. 12 minutes out of 24 hours. And she picks up on an idea that Scott Peck and others have written about through the years, and that is that for a relationship to be healthy, one has to make regular deposits. Regular deposits. Relationships are sort of like bank accounts, she says. You know, if you don't deposit as much as you withdraw, you end up bankrupt. You have to deposit more than you withdraw. Deposit more than you withdraw. A marriage takes a lot of work. Being good parents takes a lot of work. Being a good friend takes time and energy. Having a vital faith requires regular deposits on our behalf as well as God's behalf. Dr. Tankersley does more funerals here than any of the rest of us. But I do enough, and Dr. Coral doesn't. We talk about funerals from time to time, and we've all agreed, wow, what a difference it is to help plan a funeral with people whom we see in church every week and planning a funeral with people who, as far as we know, have never been here. We do their funerals, but trying to help them plan one is a wholly different experience. At this point, I recommend the 23rd Psalm. Oh, how does that go? At this point, I recommend a good, strong hymn like, Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope. How does, how does that go? So I hum along, I sing a little, I do whatever I have to to help them get there. But those who've been making regular deposits into their faith, into their worship experience helping that family plan a wedding, a baptism, a funeral, is a very different experience. Number four. If you abide in me, I abide in you. If you eat and drink, on the last day, I will lift you up. I will lift you up. Jill Jackson, young adult in the middle of World War II. The whole world had gone to war. All the eligible young men had been sent away to war. There were more opportunities for women, but not enough for everybody. And she attempted suicide. She would later write that when she woke up in a hospital, she experienced unconditional love for the first time in her life. I tell you, she said, I experienced the unconditional love of Almighty God. I knew I had been given a second chance. And I resolved to do whatever it took for me to come to know this one who loved me so very much. Well, the war was over. She met and married someone she'd come to love very much. 
Six years later, he is a composer, she is a poet. They've been asked to work a big youth camp up in the mountains of California. 180 teenage kids at this camp, and they decide, well, if you were to write a poem and I a tune, something new for these kids, I don't know, maybe it would speak to them. And so Jill wrote, Let there be peace on earth, and let it begin with me. With God, our Creator, family, all are we. The family is being invited to the table.